From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The sea services are talking more and more about how they're working together and working with allies to execute the national defense strategy in an era of great power competition. That means some of the services are going places you might not expect them to go. Vice Admiral Linda Fagan, the Coast Guard's Pacific Area Commander, talked about the Guard's role in defending contested waters at the West 2020 conference in San Diego last week. After her remarks, she explained how her force is working with its partners at sea. We operate alongside our, our Navy peers. Uh, we've, we had uh, ships in the Western Pacific this past summer doing a Taiwan Straits transit under the OPCON and TACON of 7th Fleet. Uh, many people get confused about what is this thing that we call the Coast Guard. Mm -hmm. uh, we are a military uh, branch, but we also have law enforcement authorities, and that duality allows us to uh, be particularly flexible and nimble uh, across uh, the spectrum of um, you know the the challenges we face as a nation. Our sweet spot isn't in the lethality game, that shouldn't surprise you, but it is in uh, the partnership and capacity building as we work with uh, other nations, Coast Guards, and in many cases, navies. Some, many nations' navies uh, function more like a Coast Guard, and we bring uh, a lot of expertise and uh, training and partnership so that other countries can enforce their own uh, sovereignty in their own waters. It strikes me too that there's a big sweet spot in the personnel and the hardware integration with the other sea services. Yes, absolutely. So uh, our national security cutters, that some of the, the newest, uh, most sophisticated cutters that we are operating uh, are very comparable to a Navy frigate. Uh, a lot of Navy uh, typed Navy-owned uh, systems on board that allow for just an exceptional integration from a communications and capability standpoint. And the deployment uh, that we made last summer really highlighted that. It wasn't just, hey, we're talking about integrating. We were fully integrated with our, mm -hmm. our Navy peers during that operation. What did you learn from that operation that will apply in a potential, I hope we don't have a conflict, yeah. but in the context of the national defense strategy? All right, they tell you, train how you're going to fight, and yep. that's exactly what we did last summer. And so uh, to the extent uh, that we needed to gain familiarity with equipment and um, you know, just the, across the suite of interoperating, uh, we did that and, and then some. Uh, we, those ships as they came out of theater were at a level of readiness that we would not be able to accomplish on our own, that mm -hmm. it absolutely takes that kind of integration and inside-by-side uh, -side steaming and operations that uh, was just really a great, uh, great success. What's the capability matrix look like where this is a Coast Guard mission and this is a Navy mission or this is a Marine Corps mission? Yeah, so that's a great, uh, great question too. Um, I'll use, for example, we did a lot of UN sanction mm -hmm. uh, enforcement work. That's a you know that's a national priority, uh, international uh, work that uh, Coast Guard ships and crews did uh, alongside Navy ships and crews. Uh, didn't need to, didn't have to be a Coast Guard ship, but but uh, you know a nice example of that uh, that duality. I think the the work that the Coast Guard does and Coast Guard does best is in that. Um, uh, you know, kind of the the competitive space of uh, helping nations with their own uh, their own enforcement. So whether it's countering uh, 
illegal unregulated fishing, uh, teaching members how to do uh, law enforcement boardings. That's Coast Guard work uh, best done under our Title 14 authorities. Uh, but again, with the duality, we're absolutely capable of uh, providing additional uh, resourcing and support to the Navy and the more Title Title 10 10 type uh, activities. Either from that exercise last summer or just from ongoing exercises and operations, what do you need that you don't have now or, or what do you need more of that you don't have enough of now yeah. to execute the full vision, the full strategy of what you and all the other sea services envision in that zone? Yeah, so uh, we, you know, we we need access to the shipbuilding community the same as the Navy. We need access to the shipyards you know, so that so that the ships can be maintained and continue to uh, operate at a level of, of readiness that, uh, that that you know we need and the American public uh, ex expects from us. Uh, the shoreside infrastructure piece for the Coast Guard continues to be a challenge. Every Coast Guard operation starts and stops from a shore-based uh, facility. And, uh, you know, Commandant's been on record. We've got a $2 billion backlog in that shore infrastructure. And that increasingly is uh, becoming a challenge with regard to our ability to forward deploy and mm -hmm. operate. As I talk to you and your peers across the services, it's fascinating to me that something like IT infrastructure becomes so critical yeah. now yeah. to mission delivery. You know, you're out here on the tip of the spear, but that conversation that Admiral Schultz is having about our IT infrastructure is way behind yep. is just as critical to you as the ships that you have in the, in yeah, the water. Yeah, absolutely. And without the IT and the communication mm -hmm. suites, the ships are interesting, but you can't <laughs> you can't actually uh, affect uh, the presence and the and the operations that you're uh, that you're looking for. I'll use for example the uh, the Polar Star, which is uh, you know our only operating uh, icebreaker right now, uh, has just left New Zealand. She's uh, heading back to home port. But had a IT uh, issue that had them off. They were unable to communicate with anything other than a sat phone for uh, for almost a two-month period. Mm. Uh, same for the Healy when she's in the Arctic. And so, the IT infrastructure is absolutely essential for investment. But then also some of the additional uh, infrastructure that'll be needed, particularly to communicate in uh, in high latitudes and as the polar security cutter. Comes online, the first one we should take delivery of, and uh, and uh, have around 2024. Mm -hmm. uh, VT Halters got the uh, the award for the polar security cutter, and uh, so all of that becomes just increasingly critical, so that you can uh, so you can communicate with the with the ships as they're uh, as they're forward deployed around the globe. More of my conversation with Vice Admiral Linda Fagan at the West 2020 Conference straight ahead on Government Matters: How the changing threat landscape is changing the Coast Guard's role in the Pacific and around the world. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The National Defense Strategy has started a discussion about great power competition that permeates every aspect of national defense. At the West 2020 conference in San Diego last week, I asked Vice Admiral Linda Fagan, the Coast Guard's Pacific Area Commander, about the peer adversaries that are driving the focus on competition. So obviously, you know, as we talk about great power competition and the rise of China, that's the, the biggest biggest change in, uh, in the region. Uh, and then uh, as a counter to some of the Chinese activity, particularly in Oceania and the South Pacific, and the Coast Guard has, uh, you know, as I said, we had the ship deployments last summer. We have some similar deployments planned uh, for this summer. Uh, in particular, we had a uh, operation last summer, Op Ainga, 
Ienga is a Samoan for family, and we will do a similar uh, operation focused on our small Pacific Island uh, nation partners, capacity building partnership, and uh, you know, with the goal of being relevant and offering uh, expertise that may be needed by the nation in a way that doesn't uh, doesn't overwhelm them. And we will, as I say, we've got a number uh, number of activities planned this summer to, uh, to to do exactly that. What do our partners find the most valuable resource that we can offer? Is it just knowledge and experience, or are there other things, specific kinds of training or specific yeah. times of equipment that they can model from or yeah. something like that that they find most valuable in their interactions with us? So I would say yes to all of that, right? <laughs> okay. and, um, and so, but I, I am mindful uh, I, you know, I've, I've visited many, uh, you know, many of these countries, and in some cases, uh, the country's navy is much more of a peer to us mm -hmm. as the U.S. Uh, Coast Guard, uh, and in others, the Coast Guards are small and nascent, and so I'm very mindful that we not overwhelm, that yes. we not come in and say, "Hey, we've got all of this training or equipment that you may find useful," and that it, so it really becomes tailor-made to uh, to the country that you're talking about. Many countries are absolutely peer uh, professional and have a ton of capacity, so that conversation looks like one thing. Uh, other countries, not, uh, not so true. One of the things that uh, the Coast Guard, I think, in particular provides expertise in is uh, the governance aspects of, of maritime sovereignty. We have a thing called, we call it the Model Maritime Code, and we help countries then uh, with some of the, the government and infrastructure uh, that needs to be in place to ensure that you, if you were to do a law enforcement boarding at sea that you've then got a judicial system ashore that allows you to follow through with that enforcement and prosecution in a way that uh, uh, that's impactful as opposed mm -hmm. to just identifying the infraction and then not having uh, any ability to uh, to sort of clo close the loop on it jurisdictionally. And that's especially valuable, I imagine, from their perspectives coming from you because with all due respect to our Navy friends who have a terrific JAG Corps, that's not their thing. Right. And this is your thing. This is our thing. We do this, uh, you know, we do this every day in the, in the Eastern Pacific and in our counter-narcotics mission. We, um, I mean, every day from the uh, statements of no objections to the at-sea at boarding, uh, to the interdicting of the narcotics, preservation of evidence, and putting that into the cycle of justice in a way that then, um, you know, results in um, members, uh, you know, arrested at sea and serving, you know, in some cases, 10 plus year jail sentences mm -hmm. as a result of that effort. We just have a couple of minutes left. We've talked about kind of what the landscape has looked like to today. We've talked a lot about where you are today. What do you anticipate in your zone? The What's the evolution that you anticipate? <clears throat> Excuse me. What's the evolution of the landscape that you anticipate in the coming years? Is it pretty yeah. much go look at the NDS, or are, are there particular areas that you think are, are you that know. you anticipate being uh, changing? So I, what I see coming at us is uh, the demand for Coast Guard services, which is high now, and I don't see anything as I sort of sense across the AOR that tells me that will diminish. You know, as the world's best Coast Guard. Uh, many countries uh, look to us to, uh, to to offer again the partnership and uh, capacity building and, and expertise exchanges. Uh, the high latitudes is 
as uh, we bring those polar security cutters online, uh, our need to generate actual presence in uh, in the Arctic will uh, will continue to to be a uh, a steady demand signal. And Antarctica is equally as uh, as strategic and imperative to us as a as a nation. I think just you know in general the the demand broadly. Uh, from across the Pacific will, will continue, and as we bring, you know, national security cutters online, the offshore patrol cutter, the polar security cutters, uh, it will help posture the the Coast Guard to uh, to absolutely be relevant as uh, as the the world dynamic changes in the region. Very quick final thought, Admiral. You mentioned a lot of pieces of hardware that are in the pipeline. Do you believe that if all of those things come through on the schedule that they're currently on, that you're going to be equipped the way that you need to be equipped? Five years out, ten years out. Yeah. So uh, you know, and the schedule that they're on as they're coming, uh, we will be a, a much uh, you know a, a much readier Coast Guard uh, as we replace those fifty-plus-year-old uh, assets that uh, that we are, are beginning to, to decommission. They said the ships need piers and support and all of that uh, shoreside logistics and uh, turning the corner on uh, on that conversation in a way that helps us to get out from under that backlog is really really going to be critical as we move forward. You can see my entire conversation with Vice Admiral Linda Fagan at GovMatters.tv. Coming next, two big indicators of what's next for the Navy and Marine Corps. Straight ahead on Government Matters, expert reviews on sea service strategies. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, GovMatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Both the Navy and the Marine Corps are in the middle of a revitalization and modernization that will result in much different forces than they have today. A new force structure assessment should be coming from the Navy any day now. The Marine Corps is already working under the new Commandant's planning guidance. At the West 2020 conference in San Diego last week, I asked the two leaders of the sponsors of the event, Lieutenant General Bob Shea, U.S. Marine Corps retired of AFSEA, and Vice Admiral Pete Daly, U.S. Navy retired of the U.S. Naval Institute, what the response has been to the future plans of both forces. People see change coming. I, I think change is, um, is, the need for change is recognized in the industry. It's recognized in the commercial sector as well because of the competitive nature that they're in. I think is uh, I think what we're starting to see now with the guidance, particularly coming from the Commandant and the CNO's uh, frag order here, that uh, we're seeing a, a recognition and acknowledgement at the senior leadership le levels that change has got to come. And so I think industry sees opportunities out there. The services seem to be more than willing to uh, sit down, talk, have that discussion, find out where industry can help them, and and uh, be able to move forward. So I think there's there's a, a vision of there's a vision out there of where we need to go. It's much more focused than it's been in the past, and I think it's what, what that has done is create an environment where uh, they can look at the capabilities and the needs, uh, the industry can look at the capabilities and needs that they can focus on to help uh, enable the force going forward. What do you see from the floor, Pete? Same thing? Well, I see, uh, I see that, and I also see that, uh, of course, our conference is focused on the sea service side mm -hmm. with Navy, Marines, and Coast Guard. And I think it was very important this year for our attendees to see the two new service chiefs on the Navy and Marine Corps side. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, as you know, the Navy and Marine Corps have for years said, you know, we're a blue-green team. But uh, the Commandant's planning guidance uh, really 
really got their imagination and they wanted to see it. Mm -hmm. And I heard from uh, many of our attendees that seeing the interaction between those two new service chiefs really convinced them of the seriousness about the integrated naval warfare approach mm -hmm. that's being discussed. And it's just one of those things that you can only get in the flesh. I think it's interesting that each of the chiefs of the three branches that you mentioned, Pete, it has been, I think, far more clear focused is the word that you used, and I think that's accurate, Bob, than I can remember about what each of the services need. What's driving that? Is it the budget concerns? Is it the threat landscape? Is it a combination of those? Is it something else, Bob? Well, I, I, think, it's an, I think it's a combination of those things. For one thing, uh, General Berger came from the Pacific and the Indo-Pacific region, and he'd been out there for a while. He had a good handle on what was going on, what the threat was. He was watching it evolve, and you could just see that it was clicking in his mind the things that, that he needed to do when he became commandant to get people focused. Um, but certainly the threat is out there, and uh, I think there's an awakening across the broader s section, not just within the military, but all of government and even in industry, that uh, there is a threat out there that uh, is evolving, it's growing stronger, and so we can't just sit back on our hands and, uh, and, and fret about it. The other thing is uh, the Marine Corps really needed this injection of new thought leadership. Not that what we were doing in the past is bad, but the, the country going forward doesn't need a second land army. I think General Berger recognized that, and so he's developing now as a force that's gonna be able to go out there integrate tightly with the Navy to complement the Navy, to support the Navy and the Naval forces uh, going forward. And, and his vision, I think, has been, it's been strong, it's been powerful and courageous. Pete, what did you learn? Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say another thing that I think has really focused them to pick up on your previous question is the fact that they know they need to get a lot better. They know our potential adversaries are adapting and getting a lot better, and they're not gonna get a lot more money to do it. So they've had to make choices and prioritize in a way that maybe they weren't so up on before. Mm -hmm. That's great context actually for what I was gonna ask, which is what's from all of this discussion here, what is your takeaway? What have you learned about what the top challenge or challenges might be for the general officer flag that's maybe a level or two below the chief level as he or she goes back to his or her command and thinks about all of these issues? Well, I think that the big takeaway is that we have to make those choices that I think they can definitely come away with the idea that the chiefs mean it. I think uh, the two big services involved here, Navy and Marine Corps, are potentially at different parts in their trajectory. The Navy still seems to be struggling with the readiness thing. Um, the Marines have it too, but I'd say the large capital ships and, uh, and the aircraft that the Navy has has proven to be uh, more difficult than they want. They want to be focused on just modernization and lethality. Mm -hmm. um, I'd say though for both sides, it's just that the chiefs are serious about stop doing some of the legacy things and get to the future faster. What do you think? The well, I think one of the challenges they've got going forward is how do you transition from this environment, what they grew up in from 9-11 going forward, how do you transition that and how do you change your mindset? How do you become com comfortable and develop the culture you're going to need 
to, uh, and reinforce the culture that you need uh, to operate in this expeditionary mode. We've been out there and doing expeditionary operations for, for you know, forever with the Marine Expeditionary Units. But by and large, there's a lot of Marines out there who haven't really operated in that environment. They've been in a lot of ways a second land component, part of a second land component, or an Air Force. So they're gonna have to figure out, you know, provide that leadership guidance and, and um, I think the other thing they're gonna have to do is to enable uh, the younger people below them, the more junior people below them, to be creative in their thought and how do we maximize this force? And it's no different than you know in, in industry. You got to enable the people below you. They'll come up with some really good ideas that will support the concepts and uh, that that are trying to be espoused at this point. A quick final thought: about 30 seconds. Pete, put the uniform back on. Going back to command. How do you go back and enable that creativity in your sailors to generate what Bob's talking about? I think you've got to be comfortable in your skin as a CEO and accept the fact, especially in the culture of the Naval Service, the mission command that assumes that every once in a while you're going to have to rein somebody in, but allow them to reach as far as they can and accept an occasional rein in. You can see my entire conversation with General Shea and Admiral Daly and all of our conversations from the West 2020 Conference at GovMatters.tv. During this year's West 2020 conference in San Diego, we noticed a few themes emerge from the showroom floor. I spoke with industry leaders on their efforts towards cloud strategies, capability, and speed to mission. One of the keys to speed to mission is our devices that we sell to the Department of Defense are all commercial off the shelf. And we make sure that they achieve all of the government's required certifications so that they're ready to go. And the government, the way Samsung works with the carriers, the government can get our devices through the carriers or they can get them through our channel network partners. Yeah, we've been talking a lot about secure communications and that's really a key aspect of a speed to mission. And by doing that, there's a couple of things. One is the actual security of the communications, you know, strong encryption, confident who you're speaking in. The other aspect of that is the ability to quickly reach large groups of people when there are emergency situations and make sure that you're delivering accurate information. Well, one of the things we're really focused on is bringing more capability to the warfighter as quickly as possible um, because the threats continue to increase and they need capability quickly. So what we're doing, one of the things we're doing in uh, Aegis, which is our, uh, ship, our Aegis ship program, is what's called Aegis Speed Capability. And these are like six-month center uh, rapid hitter capability deliveries that we can do. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.